Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I've been interviewing fascinating and talented people from all walks of life for the past 20 years as an unscripted television producer and before that as a small town sports reporter. Each episode, I talk to extraordinary individuals working in reality television, documentaries, true crime, game shows, and much more. Now, if you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Bleave.com and at Bleave Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Bleave at Bleave.com. All right, let's get started. Of course, we're going to talk about the Emmys, which were on September 19th, but first... I want to introduce my guest. She is a phenomenal Emmy Award winning creator, director, executive producer, and showrunner of unscripted television and documentaries. Her credits include Growing Up is a Drag for Snapchat, Flex and Shanice for Own, Light in the Water for Logo, Fox's classic reality series, The Simple Life, the feature documentary, Hungry. Her latest series, Ally Raceman, Darkness to Light, is a three-part documentary which she is executive producer and director for Lifetime. It premieres on September 24th. Please welcome Patty Ivan Specht. Thank you for being here, Patty. How are you? Well, hey, mister. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I think the best place to start is let's talk about this project, the Ally Raceman Project, which premieres on Friday, premieres September 24th. Ali Raceman is a gold medal winning and world champion gymnast. She came forward to address her abuser, Larry Nasser, who was the team doctor for the United States gymnastics team. Uh, and he was convicted. For people who haven't seen the trailer, haven't read a press release, I kind of want to just give the the basics, the 101 on what the project is. So Ali Raceman, Darkness to Light, it's a three-hour documentary special designed to raise awareness about sexual abuse across all ages and backgrounds while supporting survivors. Special follows Raceman as she meets with individuals who have suffered abuse and discusses their trauma while also sharing her story. I mean, it couldn't be more urgent. Allie and her teammate, three of her teammates were in front of Congress talking about the FBI's failure to help them out over the course of this horrendous abuse. Tell me a little bit about the Alley Raceman Project, Darkness to Light, how you got involved, mm-hmm. and kind of how you approached this project as a showrunner, as a director. Number one, I, I'm so grateful that you referenced the historic Senate hearing last week because it was really, for anyone who caught it on the news for 30 seconds, you know, it was chilling. It was really chilling. These these four young women were sitting on that panel fighting for their lives. You know, they've been doing this for six years. So, uh, you know, and they just got the call a couple of weeks ago to basically be subpoenaed to come to D.C. and testify in front of Congress. And it was a, it was really I felt their hope like I felt their their hope and their desire to be heard because it's really been an unsatisfactory six years of seeking justice. And that is relevant to this project because the reason Allie Raceman came 
to lifetime to really want to make this project is that the way survivors are treated in this society is such an abomination. And, you know, we do, we live in a society where perpetrators tend to be protected and, you know, survivors tend to be vilified and kind of told to wait their turn and hold on and, you know, wait for the process. And the process is just not fair for survivors. And we're looking at these four gorgeous, talented, some world renowned women. And if these women cannot get justice, what, who, what about the person who lives on your street? Like if they can't get justice, this whole conversation is a non-starter. And so I think that it's really poignant that, and it's just serendipity. And this has only happened a few times in my career. You know, uh, this project was originally going to air around the Olympics, which from a programming point of view, just made a lot of sense. Right. And for a bazillion reasons, it didn't happen. So it was slugged to air, you know, this Friday, 924 and thrilled, right? So happy. But then when the subpoena happened and they could do the hearing last week and suddenly it's a national dialogue again. And I think we really have to know, like, you know, this, this is something we can't just look the other way and go, oh yeah, I hope that gets worked out. It's like this over this past like five, six, eight years between Sandusky, between Ohio State, USC just completed a billion dollar payout, a billion dollar payout to survivors of their student health uh, gynecologists who'd been abusing people for decades. UCLA had one, Michigan. I mean, it's such an institutional problem. And I think we have to stop thinking that this is just like, you know, go on to the next news cycle. And that's what Allie's really doing with this project is really trying to give survivors a place to work out their healing and inform audiences of like, how, how do you help someone heal? What does that look like? Anytime that we're taking on as storytellers subject matter that is as sensitive as what this is, you know, there's probably nothing more sensitive as sexual abuse. How did you go about crafting the stories here, working with Allie, Mm -hmm. working with your team Mm -hmm. when it comes to dealing with this type of subject matter? I have cared about this space for a really long time. So I feel like I came to this project with a sensitivity and awareness of how hard it is to, you know, first of all, even have as a survivor being willing to talk to a TV person, right? Because they've gone through the biggest trauma of their lives. And now, you know, here we come with a camera and a microphone and like, wouldn't it be great if we talk about the worst day of your entire life? Like what a masochist, like what a masochistic thing to ask someone to do. But the truth is, and this is what's so magical about what we do as storytellers. I think it must be part of just the human condition, but people want to be heard. And there is so much validation in getting to tell your story. And so when... I approach a project like this. It's really about finding a connection and giving people the space to tell their story and to feel heard and to use their pain to try to help someone else. Because if they can do that, and that's really what most survivors who are willing to take on a microphone are doing, they are trying to pay it forward to help someone else not go through the travesty that they've gone through. I will also say as a secondary answer to your question, you know, Lifetime is really seasoned at this genre and they are 
100% the best partner for this because this is not, and, and this week actually on my social media too, I'm going to go more into this because it's really fascinating the care and attention that is paid to this. Like we've all worked in fast and furious television and sure. that is not what this is. Like right. this is a totally different approach to making nonfiction television. We have a mental health consultant. I mean, I have a consultant available, not only to the on-camera people, but to the people behind the scenes, because yeah. it's traumatic to listen to people's trauma for 10 yep. hours a day. I always, especially am really sensitive for audio people, like audio and editors, like they live with this and it is really, um, you it, it wears you down. So Lifetime, you know, is really, prepared. Like they really, they have a strong protocol in place about what, what needs to happen. And, and, and that really supports people in front of the camera and behind. Tell me a little bit about working with Allie. Obviously this is after what she's been through, this is her mission to help other survivors. Allie is sincerely invested in every frame of television that will make air on Friday night. Like she's not, she did not just show up and put her name on this and keep it moving. She was a collaborative force from day one and really intimately involved. And so I think that for me, that's super interesting because we've all worked on projects where that's not the case. And so to have someone who cares that much come alongside this project and use her expertise was really helpful. And her willingness to reach out to anybody, you know, we spend in the, in the film, we spend time with, um, Tarana Burke, who's like personal hero, incredible human founder of the me too movement. And they had known each other just be as famous people do sometimes. Um, but this was the first time they sat in a room together and to see the magic between the two of them and to get to be a part of that day was incredible incredible. And, and probably though these two women are really fighting sexual violence in a meaningful way on a daily basis in a way that no one has right. in in, in my lifetime, for sure. Patty, tell me a little bit about some of the stories without giving too much away. Mm-hmm. What are some of these stories that we are going to hear and kind of what, what are we going to learn um, a, a little bit about in this documentary special? Um, and, and how the special is broken out. It's a two hour documentary. And then we did a third hour. That's really more of like a round table talk with experts from the transgender community, the disability community, and actually a rabbi who's a, a, a survivor of abuse, really fascinating, incredible people who are survivors and now advocates. So the third hour also dips into neuroscience and kind of how there are some ways that survivors are healing now. And it was brilliant. It was so interesting to experience um, that and to help produce that piece because that's kind of a, it's almost like a companion piece to the two hour documentary where the third hour really gives you actionable items um, of things you can do. So the two hour is exactly that. Like Allie, you know, goes out and meets people whose stories she's heard about or read about or seen. And they go deep, they go deep on, you know, sharing trauma, how they survive, how there's, you know, how they're getting through, what does justice look like? You know, there's so much misinformation. People think your abuser could be thrown in jail or they're dead and you're done. You're like, peace out. That was great. And the truth of the matter is that's one small piece of the puzzle. And these survivors are 
living with the PTSD of the trauma for decades. In the, in the film, we even towards the end of the movie, we have this gorgeous human named Dave Moody, who's 65 years old. And, you know, generationally, he and Allie have nothing in common, and yet they come together and, you know, they really share the same mission. And he, they, they, they go deep on like, how do you find healing after so much trauma? And he's a charismatic, neat, neat man. So we, we cover a few, we cover several things, you know, while we were filming, there was a suicide from the 2012 uh, Olympic coach. So it was really, again, timing is so weird in nonfiction, like, right, you just, you're there to capture it. And it was, you know, we had found out maybe on Wednesday that this person was gonna be charged. Um, rumor was the police were going to finally charge this person who people had suspected for six years. And Thursday, he gets charged at noon and by four o'clock he was dead. And in that window, we had filmed with Tarana Burke. So poor Allie didn't know until we left that um, filming. And, you know, while we were there to meet other survivors, because she's still so active in her healing, there is, you know, and it's an unfolding investigation still. So there's constantly new things happening. And so part of that was captured in our project as well. There's a really fascinating story that we uncovered that national news has not really touched yet about a doctor in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, who really had been abusing kids for decades. He was a pediatrician. And so we spend a long, you know, significant period of time in the film meeting those survivors, hearing how the whole town was complicit, how the whole town, he gets his license taken away, gets his license given back the town, you know, the victim shaming and the blaming and the gaslighting. So there's several layers of storytelling inside this two hours. And um, I think the biggest takeaway is this doesn't happen to one community. This happens in every corner of our society. Anytime you're telling a story like this, it affects you, right? As a showrunner, how did telling these very serious, very emotional stories affect you? Well, for me, this for me is really the kind of project that like lights up my soul. Like this is the reason, like this is what, this is truly why I do what I do. Like I love projects that have an undercurrent of social justice to them. And there's so much justice in a survivor who isn't a famous global, globally known athlete getting a microphone and getting to tell their story. So that is the empowering side. But there were certainly days where I couldn't, I mean, I talked to hundreds of people before we landed on who we were gonna film with. And that's, there's always a million reasons, as you know, why sometimes it's not a good fit um, or the story is not adjudicated or there's an un unfolding investigation. There's a lot that goes into choosing what pieces can make television, um, especially when you're doing something that is, it could be conceived as justice adjacent crime adjacent. It was painful. I mean, there were a lot of days. It was really painful, you know, being with these people and talking to these survivors and watching them cry in the middle of an interview and just needing to give them space and wait for it to like pass and regain composure. And it's really hard, but again, I'll go back to, there's something remarkable when people can let the steam out of the pot and feel heard and acknowledged and supported 
by a human on the other side. And that connection at the end of the day, I really firmly believe is more supportive and helpful than exploitative. So, you know, there's a process of all of this that you have to be really smart about, you know, is this additive to this human's existence or is this sheer exploitation? And you, there's a line you walk as a director in the field. And I think it is so important when people have, are sharing their trauma with you to always, you know, be in line with like, is this additive to their healing? Is this additive to their journey? Is this necessary to be reliving this experience? And sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. You're just making those judgment calls constantly. Is there a sense of hope that you see that with people like Allie, with projects like what you're doing, is there a sense of hope that these things are going to stop? I don't think the predators are going to be stopping, but I think the more we normalize these conversations among friends and families, coworkers, and, you know, and really integrate awareness that this is a problem in our society, that's our hope because prevention, I think will lie in people using their voice. Hey, I don't, you know, I don't think it's a good idea. I think that, you know, actually I'll give you an example. Um, if this happens everywhere, my son's high school had a sexual predator of 15 years, apparently as an English teacher at the school, he was arrested like two weeks ago. So to I'm telling you like this is happening everywhere, right? So this is not someone else's problem. This is really all of our problems. And it's not only like, a, oh, I don't have kids. It's not my problem. No, you have neighbors. You, you know, no one wants to see anyone get hurt, right? So I think there is something empowering about individuals taking their heads out of the sand and realizing this is a true problem in our society and you can't check out of the conversation. Um, even if you're not you feeling like you're ever going to directly be affected by it. Cause number one, you may be, I mean, you know, there's a whole, by the way, abuse is happening from like infant care centers to elderly abuse at homes. So it's, it is not going anywhere and it kind of, it affects every corner of society. So I think I'll go back to normalizing the conversation around it, learning what you can do to be aware of it. Darkness to Light is an organization that Allie works with and that we featured in the or in the documentary. And, you know, they have like a really smart five key steps to prevention that I can give you to put into the show notes, you know, but it's really just talking about it, minimizing opportunity. If you have kids, like, be really clear about who they're with and who they're not. You know, if you suspect something, taking action. I mean, really things that are somewhat logical, but but we as humans tend to talk ourselves out of it. Like, oh, that guy's just odd. Or the woman, mm, I don't know why she keeps giving that kid toys. People are, does, no one really wants to look at those things. But I think if you have an inclination that something is wrong, it's okay to follow that up and take action. What I love and respect so much about what Allie and her teammates and fellow gymnasts have done in banding together is that they really sent a message that it's, you know, great. Okay, fine. He's in jail. Excellent. He can't hurt other children. Thank goodness. Right. But that's, that is not enough. You know, the way accountability works, it, this was not a one-man job. 
a lot of people had to look the other way for this man to get away with this for decades. So I, I don't think it's asking too much for these women to get a proper third party, full transparency investigation. There have been investigations, Steve, but there's been whole sections carved out of USAG that were off limits, which is why it's so controversial. So I think this final appeal, because to me, when I looked at the Senate hearings, it shook me the way January, 2018 shook me when I watched them in that courtroom, when they sat in front of those senators last week and they were basically like, you're it. Like, where else do we go from here? Like, if you all aren't going to do anything, who's going to do something? And asking for full accountability and for all the people who look the other way. And I have said, I believe this so much. It really does take a lot of people have to choose to look the other way for a child to be abused, period. And that's probably true for, you know, abused um, spouses, for you know, partners for, that's probably true on everything. I especially think it's true with children because there's usually an intersection of adults in the periphery. But the key word is, is like people have to choose to look the other way because doing something takes courage. And what we've seen in gymnastics and the gymnastics world is like courage is contagious. One person was courageous and then quickly 200 and not quickly, but over time, 275 other people lined up alongside and said, oh my gosh, me too. And at USC, I don't know what the final number was, but when I started this project, it was at 600. A few months ago, it was like 750. I mean, courage is contagious. And I think it is important that these, these institutions that we trust ourselves with, our children's with, our nieces and nephews with, that they're held accountable and that they know like you're not getting away with this because for one man to go to jail. So what there's, you know, several, there's four men involved. One man has a trial pending, two have committed suicide and one is in jail now. So let's say that you, a lot of people work for that institution. So there's four people who have some accountability, but let's be real. Like, there were a lot of people who chose to look the other way. And I think that's what the big ask is. Like, don't just placate us and tell us this is all fine now that these this one guy's in jail, two people are dead. Like, who knew? And that's the only way you can have confidence moving forward that other people won't be exposed to really dangerous circumstances. Agreed. Accountability is everything. And it's something we don't see a lot of in our society at all right now. And it's something that could really help in many, many facets, right? I wanna talk a little bit about your career and we can talk about the Emmys. So let's transition um, a little bit. One of the things that's really incredible about your career, you can do darkness to light, very Mm -hmm. serious, but you can also do dress my nest, Mm -hmm. right? Something not very serious. How do you find that ability as a storyteller to do something so kind of fun and light, but also be able to tell the really serious types of stories. I really will say I am not a widget maker. What I really know about myself for being in this for 25 years is I really care about every project I do. And I really mean that sincerely. So, you know, and when you talk about dress my nest, which was, you know, 
15 years ago or something. It was a really long time ago. I freaking love that show. And I learned so much and it was such a wonderful, great experience. Tom Felicia is one of the funniest people I've ever met. And it was such a gift to get to make that show. We did 40 episodes of that series and it was just a, a great, it was great fun. Um, you know, at this season of my career, I'm way more interested in, in, in shows and projects that have social value currency. And I'm developing something right now with Smithsonian Channel, which is a big, frothy, fun competition series. But at its core, it's with Smithsonian Channel and it has some gravitas. And, and that really speaks to me as a producer. So, I mean, you know, growing up as a drag was another example. That is a super fun series. It, at the time, I think that was probably five years ago now, it was, you know, 14 year old boys doing drag in their room and parents really being freaked out about like, what is, what does that mean? Did I fail as a parent? Lots of crying, all of the things. But if you ever see the series, it's actually just a really delightful, frothy coming of age series that just kind of celebrates people finding themselves. Um, so, I, you know, I, I'm I'm drawn to a lot of different programming, but I will say the things that really deeply move my soul are things that I really feel like media can help make the space better. And right now, I'm. I'm just finishing a different documentary about white women's role in upholding white supremacy. And I'm very excited about the next steps for this piece, but it's a really provocative 90 minutes on kind of what we do to keep the patriarchy alive and, and ultimately ends up really hurting women of color. That sounds good. I think that's great that you're able to find that balance and that, you know, people allow you to tell those different types of stories. Um, Cause I think a lot of times we get pigeonholed that you're the renovation person, yeah. you're the docu-soap person. Yeah. How do you convince people that you can do it all? It's such a smart question. Like that is such a good insider question, Steve. Like obviously you do this for a living. So the truth of the matter is, and I'll give you a great example. You know, when Julie and I started PB&J, we were maybe at the time the only female owned production company and we were in our early thirties and we were, we both came off of big hit shows and suddenly like we had every girl themed series happening. We did NBC um, for NBC. We did sports illustrated swimsuit model search, which like killed in the ratings, by the way, they would love to have those ratings today. Then, um, and we didn't do a second season for a myriad of legal problems and reasons, but we did a couple seasons of, um, oh, we did the Swedish show called prom, prom queen, prom queen, prom queen, something like that for uh, ABC family, which was delightful. It was so freaking fun. We did um, Miss America, two different series for two different networks because it was migrating around. So there was a hot minute where it was like, oh, I know this is a show about girls. We'll just call Patty and Julie and they'll do it. Right. Yeah. Because we were being typecast to your point. Yes. Which was great. Okay. We were delighted to be typecast on there because we do love shows about women. Of, of course. I, I just want to remind people you're talking about the great Julie Peasy. Right. Yes. Yes. So, of course. Right. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, 
you know, my point is, is like, sometimes you get typecast and it really works in your favor. Actually, when I was hired to do The Simple Life, I had just finished a documentary for Discovery about relational aggression based on the same book that Tina Fey wrote Mean Girls about. So I had just done, you know, a 90 minute documentary with teenagers all about how women have, teen women have a hard time using their words. And so they triangulate and all of this. So that was a super, they, they loved that when they hired me to do simple life, because I had just been immersed in the psychology of teen women. And then I was like a million miles away with Paris and Nicole. So typecasting is not always a bad thing, right? Because it, it, it definitely builds on your brand. My recommendation is like, listen, you can never convince somebody of anything. Like they, people come to every party with their own preconceived notions. Your job, my job is I love what I do. I'm great at what I do. I'm really of the mind, like from the first line of conception to the final delivery master, I know every stage in between. And that makes me a little bit of a unicorn because producers don't really do that as much these days. There's a lot of compartmentalization and I really care about the product. So if that's not a good fit for someone, that's really not my problem. They'll find the person that dazzles them or sells them, you know, the igloo in Alaska and then good for them. That's how that works for me. Well, then I have to ask, so it seems like you've almost come full circle. You started out doing documentaries and then you go and you do a wide variety of reality type fare. And now you're back doing documentaries. Now this is the tough question. Which do you like better? I'll tell you this. And I think I'm so, I love nonfiction so much. Like I was never the person who chose nonfiction because they didn't get into scripted. Like I intentionally chose unscripted. These are my people. I love real people. I love stories about about real people. I think not have like no script, no problem. I love that as a mantra for life. I think that is a really, we, what we do is really exciting. And I, this is really exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I think I, when I started out, I just really wanted to work in nonfiction and I love documentaries. And the first like four or five years of my career, I only worked in documentaries. And then, you know, things really exploded with nonfiction. And I had all these remarkable opportunities at Buna Murray. And I just kept saying yes and learning and growing and being so grateful to be surrounded by such awesome people. And, but my heart was always, I wanted to be in documentaries. I think the thing that's important for me personally and my story or even, you know, maybe this story I should or shouldn't have told myself. When I was coming out of UCLA, I really thought documentaries were for fancy people with fancy last names. So like, I just thought it was a club I wasn't invited to. Like, I thought if you were born yeah. a Vanderbilt or you were born a Kennedy or you were born, um, you know, fancy, then you got the privilege, right? Yeah. And, and I don't think that's a story that was healthy for me to tell myself, by the way, I'll tell you. But I did believe it. And, and it was way more true 25 years ago than it is now. Yeah. There's a, definitely a democratization of documentary in this season than there was 25 years ago. But I, so I made some films, I, you know, worked, I learned, I worked with great people. And then I got onto this path of nonfiction, which I was so grateful for. But at some point, as I mentioned earlier, I really don't want to be a widget maker. Like, that's really not what I'm called to do, right? So I, like, at some point had to, like, 
pump the brakes for a hot minute and go, who, where do I want to be? So I would say at, by the end of like 2018, I was a little bit fried and I just was like, I'm going to take a few months off and I'm going to travel and I'm going to love my life. And, and, and then 2019 ended up being one of my most prosperous years I've ever had. Like it just was one of those things where the world was like, oh, that's funny. You're actually not taking really time off. You're going to have a great year, but it put me, it allowed me to, I will say I did take time off. I took like a month off and and traveled. And that's important because I want people to normalize taking time off. Mm. It's okay to kind of pump the brakes for a second and rethink your path. And I, what came out of that was I had a kick-ass year and I started saying yes to things I hadn't said yes to before. So this was what, this was 2019. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So and you, then, you hit a point in 2019 where you took a beat, kind of looked at where you were headed and re and took a, took an alternate path, so to speak. It was really the end of 2018. I was ready. I was tired. Like I was like, I just need to pause and I don't want to make widgets. So what's the next step? And the next step was let's really go double down on documentaries. Let's double down on the space that speaks to my soul. And that's really what I've been doing since. And it's been great. It's been going really well. Do you feel like now is the best time to be in documentaries? I mean, I would, I would think so, to be honest. I still think the marketplace is wacky. And I think, you know, it's the best time if it's what you want to be doing. I think documentaries, there's the margins, not as sexy. The, you know, it's not, this is a, people go into this space because they care about the work. And if they don't care about the work, this isn't a good space for you. What kind of stories do you look for? Do you, do you want something that's a little lighter and makes you feel like, okay, we're not dying today? Or do you feel like it's almost incumbent upon us as storytellers to find things like what you're doing with Mm -hmm. Ali Raceman Mm -hmm. that try to address the big problems that we see and find solutions? I feel like the news is there to beat you down. I don't feel like I'm there for that. That's not what I do, but some people do that very, very well. But I I feel like if that is the thing you're looking for, lots of channels offer that every day. My job is to find a compelling story and then find the most compelling people to help that story come to life. Because ultimately we really, as, as consumers, like we don't really, most of us, the general pop, as I like to call the gen pop, doesn't really necessarily get drawn in by a topic. They get drawn in by a person. And so what are we doing? We are really looking for compelling humans and getting a minute to fall in love with a character or a person who has been through something maybe I haven't, but I am drawn to them and their story. And that gift that they're giving me through the screen is insight, and hopefully some hope, hope that, you know, bad stuff happens, you know, and you can get through it or bad stuff could happen. And if you're wise and you could learn A, B, and C and don't do what I did, maybe you could avoid it, you know? And I think that's really the exchange in some ways, but I think for me, and I think a great example of this was, um, an inconvenient truth. Do you remember that documentary? I remember, I remember Al Gore. Sitting, yes. Yeah. And I remember sitting in the theater being like, oh my God, <laughs> like, this isn't funny. I'm laughing, but it's not funny. But what they were so brilliant about is they ended with hope. 
And there was such a great storytelling lesson for me in that experience and watching that as a consumer, you know, without being saccharine, it's important to leave an audience and especially on something like that, which was about climate change for anyone who hasn't seen it, you know, it's important to not feel like there's nothing you can do. And I think our medium really wins when you're left with a, there's personal action you can take. There's information you can still have. Like, don't be so defeated by how hard the world is. Like, find a way to pyre, like push on. When you look at Paris and Nicole now, (laughs) could you have ever imagined that, you know, when you were dealing with them on Simple Life, that they would be, you know, Paris has a cooking show on Netflix now. And Nicole is like a respectable mom with fashion line. Could you have ever imagined that for them? They're both so awesome. I mean, I have to just tell you, like, I love that show so much and I'm so proud and so grateful to John and Mary Ellis for, you know, essentially I used to joke that they cast me for the role of Paris and Nicole's producer because they really, you know, that's kind of how it was, frankly. I'm, I'm not surprised. These women are brilliant and they're funny and they're driven, obviously, right? Because I mean, hello. And I, you know, when I decided not to do season two of that show, um, and it was because Julie Pease and I were going off to start PB&J, when I decided not to do that, it was hard to walk away in some ways. And in really a lot of ways, it was super easy to walk away because I had dreams of having my own company. And so it was like, now's the time. Here's the time to do it. But I very much felt like these women are going to be, I knew they were going to be huge, 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 huge. They're just two, they're little icons. I don't know what to say. They're just, and they were when they were just eating Chinese chicken salads on the casting couch, you know, when we met them. (laughs) Is there, um, do you have a, you know, when you look at your career, is there a craziest moment? There's so many. I'm so lucky. I'm I'm so lucky because I have so many funny stories and like things like this. One thing that sprang to mind I haven't thought about in probably 10 years. Um, I made a documentary with, I don't know if you know, Leslie Garvin, who's a huge showrunner and so amazing. She was our director. Julie and I, it was our company. Um, and it was for Showtime called Reversal of Fortune. And it's a really, it's a great movie. Um, and we it was a study of homelessness. And in this film, we filmed a homeless person for about a month in his daily life, five days a week, six days a week. Um, And then on the fifth week, he finds a hundred thousand dollars cash in a suitcase in the the place he always went to look for his cans every day. Cause that's how he kind of kept himself going. And we had a tech tech issue and our a camera didn't freaking shoot one thing on his reaction on his reaction and to tell you that that the agony that that caused me personally so it was we had three camera that day we had three camera coverage we normally only had two camera coverage um we overcame it in the edit it was fine but like that to this day still haunts me a little bit because you're never recreating that moment we you know that was never 
it was six months of casting. I had been six months pregnant, homeless people. Like it took forever to get to that spot. And then to have a camera failure was not awesome. Wait, okay, wait, just for, I'm trying to picture this. You had, so a camera is your, like your master shot. Yes. Yes. It was the master shot. No, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. And we had like a sniper cam far away because he didn't, you know, he was only used to seeing his two people a day. Yes. We couldn't have other cameras suddenly there. So that camera ended up being helpful and it ended up working out, but like, and I do think that's the thing. We are professional problem solvers. Yes. Really. Um, not the storytelling side of us, although the storytelling, I guess the storytelling side of us too, like, but like as a physical production producer, you're just, you are a professional problem solver. And that was just another problem to solve that day. Wow. You are. Oh yeah. I I would have, I've had a panic attack. I'm having a panic attack now. Just thinking about that. I was in Vegas recently and we did this really frothy show for oxygen. That was so much fun. And we closed down Las Vegas Boulevard at two in the morning and put a horse-drawn carriage down, down it with crews around it. And I thought that, you know, they would never, and right in front of the Bellagio, I'm like, they would not let us do this today. Like that, that's definitely something we got away with at a time and place. Right. Yeah. So fun things like that. Yeah. Lots of good, colorful stories. So I want to talk about the Emmys very, very quickly. Did you, what were you able to watch? I'll be honest. I didn't, I didn't watch it. I, 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 I could, I actually had a conflict last night, so I didn't watch it. And then I've been so sad hearing all the bashing today. So tell me your rundown, Steve. Okay. Look, I, I didn't watch the whole thing. So I watched in and out, but I, I did watch, um, quite a bit of it. So look, I love Ted Lasso. So I'm glad like that Brett Goldstein and, uh, Jason Sudeikis won and that, you know, and, and that the show actually won the best comedy. So, I mean, I look, I, I'm a loyal watcher of, uh, Ted Lasso and, you know, I loved Mare of Easttown. So, you know, I'm glad Kate Winslet won. Uh, so there was a lot that I was kind of, I was happy about. I'm so glad that Gene Smart won for Hacks because I thought, she was, yeah, I mean, yeah, she was amazing. Look, I've never seen an episode of The Crown. Mm-hmm. So, I, <laughs> no, like, there's no way I could tell you whether it's good or bad. It, I have zero interest in watching The Crown. Everybody who knows me knows I try to consume as much content as possible. I just have, sorry, you, yeah, it's just the one I, I, I can't get into. I loved The Queen's Gambit and, yeah, so I wasn't terribly surprised that they won as well. RuPaul's Drag Race won Best Competition again. Um, RuPaul won Best Host again. Queer Eye won Best Structured again. Uh, RuPaul's Drag Race Untucked won Best Unstructured. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that we're seeing the same winners again and again in our little world Mm -hmm. of unscripted and is that bad that maybe it might be better to spread the love around Mm -hmm. a little bit Mm -hmm. i think it's probably bad for morale i mean i i think though our niche that you're talking about represents another criticism that i read about this morning because it was back to like emmy's so white you know, there was a record number of diverse people nominated, but I think there's a core problem when the base 
isn't diverse. And so I think, right, the base of the voters are. Yes. It would be fascinating to see those statistics. Yes. So I think it's progress takes a really long time. And I think that's really what we're seeing is like, it's easy for people for especially nonfiction to, to click, to vote for what they know, you know, it takes a long time. You know, by the way, I love the story of RuPaul and drag race because that took 10 years to be an overnight hit. Of course. And, And so there's a great story in that, you know, um, but now there's such a familiarity and like the record in the groove, like that one's working for him. I do think it's, I think it does devalue a little bit of the enthusiasm. And I think um, there's a parallel, I guess, between the lack of diversity and the main categories. And then in the nonfiction categories, seeing the same people win every time does start to be a problem. But I do think there, you know, it's in, it's it's endemic of a different issue, right? That there's a diversity yeah. of people who are voting. So there's a lack of diversity of people who are voting. You know, there's so many factors at play and why and who anybody wins these things. Yeah. yeah. And and that was that's kind of my point is I was excited to see Below Deck get nominated, mm-hmm. India matchmaking, selling mm-hmm. sunset. I was shocked that they were nominated but that made me happy that right. it was brand new like oh yeah. we are showing people that there's way more than just five shows that are yeah. that are good yeah anyway that was my two cents I love an award show I really do and I I love an award show but it really has to be kept in perspective of what that value is and and, and I think for all the hardworking people who do this yes. for a living like you know what, pop a cute gown on, go do that, enjoy it. But like, don't hold too much stock in that because what happens, the machinations behind the scenes to get those lists built uh, are ugly. (laughs) I like to end the show with um, what you're watching. Obviously we want to tee up the uh, premiere of Mm. Darkness to Light. Oh yeah. I mean, listen, this is airing Friday, September 24th at eight o'clock Eastern. It'll be on Hulu. There'll probably be other streaming vendors <laughs> shortly after that. Um, we delivered it last night, so it actually is going to air. So that's nice. And um, so it airs uh, first on Lifetime? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Lifetime and then Hulu. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Correct. And I mean, and, and when I say Hulu, it's like Lifetime on Hulu. So, oh, and then, okay. right. Cause Lifetime broadcasts live on Hulu. If you use that as a vehicle in all the fun ways we get to watch TV now. So I'm psyched about that. And, you know, listen, this is made for people who care. So, you know, care, show up, watch it. Allie's an amazing talent, super fun to work with her in this lane. She's really strong in broadcast and um, I'm excited about it. As am I. The documentary that I would recommend people watch at some point is Lulu Rich. It's on my list. Okay. It's the directors of The Pharmacist and Fire Fraud, uh, Jenner First and Julia Willoughby Nason. The documentary is about Lulu Rowe, which is this multimedia marketing uh, scam. Um, I did not know this story at all. I had no idea what these leggings were so it's crazy you know like it literally is a crazy story and i always love and you being a documentary person i'm sure you you agree when the people who are actually part of the story 
speak on camera. You know, it's not a bunch of other people talking about the main characters and the actual people who ran the scam are in it. And that is just, it's just, yeah, boom. It's just mind blowing. And yeah. yeah, It's like Robert Durst in the jinx. Like you literally are, I can't get enough. I like want to just watch him on camera. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's Lula, Lula rich and that is on Amazon. Okay, I'm psyched to see that. And then I have a recommendation too from filmmaker Heather Ross, an incredible movie called For Mad Men Only. Have you heard about this? No. There was a comedy guru named Del Close who every modern comedian basically worshiped at the feet of. And this is a movie all about him and his influence. And it's riveting and it's so visually interesting. It's, It's really worth your time. It's very, very good. Patty, thank you so much for doing the show. I really appreciate it. This was a good combo. It was. I really appreciate you taking the time and for doing something like this, which not only is our genre, but is also just good awareness for people, right? You know, this is something that sexual violence happens everywhere. And when a primetime network actually devotes three hours of television on a Friday night to it, it's really lovely to see it get supported. So thank you for doing your part. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And I hope everybody watches. Thank you. And that's going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem. I want to thank my guest, Patty Ivan Specht. For everyone listening, please remember to subscribe, download, and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you have a question, email me, no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.